it would appear, and, and it's the only conclusion I think we can reach, is that there were a number of actors uh, in active conversation, certainly the World Economic Forum, certainly the government of China, and in fact, even Matt Hancock has, has kind of fessed up that the, the UK government did consult with the Chinese authorities in terms of how it supposedly dealt with uh, COVID in Wuhan. So hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm talking to Jeffrey Peel, who is a polit- well, political commentator and editor at The New Era, which is looking at how business and society will adapt to the world post-COVID, hopefully in a positive way. So Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thanks very much indeed, Josh, for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we start, I have to do two quick plugs. Uh, First of all, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now out. You can get it on Amazon, on Waterstones, and on bookshop.org. And also, our thanks to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, you can currently get 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN to protect the privacy of your browsing if you follow the link in the description below. So, Jeffrey, uh, do you want to give us like a little bit of background just on yourself for people who don't know who you are before we, we get into the, the nitty gritty? Well, I'm a, I'm a business person. You know, I've worked in business uh, most of my career uh, for about the last 20 years or so. I've been a, an independent consultant, mostly advising um, large or growing technology companies. Uh, and when you say tech these days, you know, it's kind of a, a, a red flag because obviously the, the certainly big tech is heavily tainted, really, um, in, in this uh, so-called pandemic. Um, but the companies I've typically advised are early uh, to mid-stage growth, growth stage companies. Um, and, um, and most recently, I actually worked with the government. So I was a, a specialist advisor to the Department for International Trade until December last year. So I did a three-year stint as a, on secondment to the Department for International Trade, really helping the department uh, attract companies from overseas, particularly technology companies uh, to the United Kingdom, because it's obviously a significant uh, market opportunity for them. Um, but wearing my political hat, I've been involved uh, in politics. I'm, I describe myself as a failed politician. In the, <laughs> I was involved in the Conservative Party in the past. I was a, uh, an elected councillor uh, when I lived in England. I lived in England for about 10 years in the southeast, and I was an elected councillor in, um, in the southwest Hertfordshire constituency in a, a borough council called Decorum Borough Council, which took in Hemel Hempstead and Burke Hampstead and and, uh, and various other places in a, in a very well healed part of uh, of the southeast of England, um, big Tory majority, and had a, a big Tory majority as well when I stood for a, for election there. So I've always been involved in in cons- conservative party politics. Um, I was active in attempting in the early days to get the conservative party to organise and contest elections in Northern Ireland, uh, where obviously I'm originally from. Uh, and, and now I live as well. My, my children were, were brought up and educated here after we returned uh, from England and the United States, where I also spent a, a stint. Um, and um, we were successful, obviously, in getting the Conservative Party to organize here. And the, and the whole purpose of that really was to attempt to normalize the political discourse in Northern Ireland, take it away from the usual parish pump sectarian squabble 
um, and uh, and get it focused on more substantial issues. Uh, um, and uh, so we were successful in getting the Conservative Party to organize, less successful in getting the Labour Party to organize, which obviously has never contested elections in Northern Ireland. Um, but nationally, I've always been interested in Conservative Party politics. I've, I've, um, I've rubbed shoulders with a lot of Tory politicians over the years uh, and also been involved in some of the uh, free market um, think tanks as well. I would describe myself as more of a libertarian than a conservative. You know, I'm economically libertarian and liberal, in fact. I'm a classical liberal. Um, and on social issues, um, I would be very liberal as well. So I'm fiscally conservative, if you like, and uh, socially liberal, uh, mm. which I suppose is a kind of bad definition of a, a classical <laughs> liberal or libertarian. Mm. I mean, that, that, that definition is, is one that I think is, is becoming more crucial in in probably just in the last year or more or more prevalent um uh, i i heard very few people before 2020 in modern politics decide des- decide to describe themselves as a classical liberal it was very much we were just sort of split between that like left right like socialist versus conservative divide um and the, the word liberal had, had kind of been co-opted a, a little bit in by the by by the left almost uh, which was you know fine for for when all of their policies seem to align but then the the, the last year has, has been you know a little a little difficult i wanted to quote actually um, benjamin franklin here really quickly uh, who who's who was probably uh, a very very well-defined classical liberal in himself and he said that those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Now, I, I asked you on here partially to talk about the, the idea of the, the vaccine passports. Now, that that seems like a, a pretty good place to start. And do we do is it is it right for us to give up that that sort of freedom of, of movement without, you know, requiring our, our papers, essentially, or our COVID status? certification i think as as boris is describing it at the minute should that is that is that something we should even consider um allowing in order to uh, uh, as we say purchase a little safety no uh, clearly not and and i'd even take issue with the word safety you know um (laughs) we have all all been taught by our parents and, and society at large to um uh, lead our lives in ways which um, ensure that we have a relatively safe life. Uh, and we have created institutions that um, are focused on safety and, uh, and also um, professional associations and so on. Um, but uh, when the government tells us what is safe and what isn't, and we don't necessarily agree with their definitions of safety, it becomes... Um, an act of oppression, really, if uh, they decide to ply on regardless. Now, it may be that as a result of their own propaganda and fear peddling, that a very large swathe of society believes that the government's definition of safety is the correct one. But that doesn't mean to say that we all do by any stretch of the imagination. A a very, very large uh, number of people in the United Kingdom believe that the, the government's uh, approach to the uh, so-called COVID-19 pandemic was and is totally inappropriate. 
Um, individuals should be allowed to determine themselves the degree of, wit, of, of risk that they're uh, willing to tolerate. And many people believe that actually COVID-19 no longer really represents much in the way of, of risk. It clearly is a, you know, if you, if you were to have contracted the disease and you're obese or you're of a certain age um, uh, or you have underlying health conditions that have represented the threat, but probably no greater a threat than the risk represented by contracting uh, a flu or indeed the common cold. Uh, or a, a host of other respiratory-related uh, issues. Um, there is a big question mark over the cause of death of many people who have uh, their, their deaths attributed to COVID-19. Uh, and therefore, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely right for, for certain of us in society to question whether the government's definition of public health uh, is an appropriate one vis-a-vis COVID-19, and certainly whether the... This, the uh, means of, res- of responding to the fact that certain people, for example, haven't taken the vaccine, uh, should be discriminated against in terms of their ability to avail of certain services, like going down the pub and having a pint. Uh, you know, it's many, many people, uh, many more learned than I, you know, are of the view that uh, vaccine passports are really a step too far. Uh, to be able to have to show pa- uh, papers uh, on the strength of a, an increasingly weak argument that we're exposing ourselves to risk by going out, and not wearing masks or going down the pub or choosing to do things that we, using our own volition, choose to do. Uh, you know, it's, it's stretching credulity. And, um, and I never thought that I would live in a society where we are... It's, it's verging and tyrannical in terms of its madcap notions in terms of how we should lead our lives. Mm. Now, I can hear, I can already hear the arguments against you in, in my head um, from, from people who, who tend to be quite, shall we say, cautious about, about the risks of, of, of COVID. Um, like the death rates, I think, will, whether they are accurate, will come out in the public inquiry or in the lawsuits that are currently being filed by, by relatives of people who, who were unable to see their, 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 their yeah mm. their dying family members um because they were attributed to have had covid and i know there's um progress uh sort of that on that moving through the courts but i'm not keen to get into that as much as i am into like w- what would your response be to people who say you know okay so we've had a lot of people die from this um purportedly and uh, well, according to the figures anyway, like the death rates are a little above the, the five-year average. There's, again, dispute as to whether that's because people have died because of COVID, whether people are not getting treatment because they're scared to go to hospital. But they, they would say that, look, we're just asking you to, you know, be cautious, to just just wear the mask, to just um, stay inside and, and isolate until we get a handle on this thing because, you know, that's the the, the, the righteous thing to do. Like people are saying, you know, we can protect and save lives here, arguably. I mean, we'll get on to Florida and Texas uh, soon, but um, like that—that that, that is the argument. And why do you think that that is invalid in your mind? Well, it's not invalid. You know, I think most of us, when the the lockdown was announced over a year ago, were of the view that yeah, we'll give it a try and see if this has any impact. Um, I was I was traveling. Uh, all over the place, you know, wearing my government hat. Um, and uh, I was in uh, Helsinki uh, 
run, running a business event and was on my way back to the UK and Helsinki airport was uh, deserted by that stage. You know, flying had all but stopped and we all, all had the feeling that something foreboding was about to happen. We, you know, our, our kids, who both my children who are grown up, live in, in England and we had brought them back home because we felt that something was going to happen. Um, and the uh, and obviously the announcement happened that we were going to have lockdown. Um, but of course, you know, again, it's been it's been widely stated that you know, and, and widely it was widely understood at the time that we thought this was going to be a short term measure. Um, and now we're over a year away from that, uh, that position, that, that that announcement, and and we're still in this ridiculous lockdown. Certain parts of the United Kingdom are in lockdown and we've got no uh, roadmap for getting out of it yet. And Northern Ireland being the case in point, it's uh, absolutely absurd. You know, we have elected representatives who do not give a damn about the fact that people's livelihoods have been utterly and completely destroyed. Uh, they don't give a damn about the fact that we can't go on holiday and get the vitamin D that we need in order to, to go on a, a sunny holiday. You know, it's, it's absolutely absurd. We have done what has been asked of us and more with bells on, and yet they've still locked us down. We have taken, I haven't, but many of us have taken their vaccine and still people who have taken the vaccine are still required to wear masks and still can't go where they want to go. Um, it's, and, and we had a report today in the Daily Telegraph to say that we have probably achieved herd immunity by Monday of next week. And yet still we're locked down, still we have to wear masks, still they're uh, jumping over hoops trying to explain the unexpected consequences of their, of their various vaccines. Uh, uh, you know, it is absolutely beyond belief that we still have these absurdly draconian, over-the-top, um, hysterical reactions to what is essentially uh, uh, a seasonal flu spike. Now, I know that... If you compare the uh, winter numbers of the winter 2020, 2021 to the previous five-year average, it is clearly a large spike. But if you compare it with the 10-year average up, up to that point, or the 15 or the 20-year, it's not at all. It's, it's a long-tail phenomenon. Um, it, is, it is questionable to what extent even that the virus is, is a causality because many, many people, as the government keeps telling us, um, are wandering around with the virus. They're completely unaffected by it. They don't have to go to hospital. They don't have to get any medical treatment. That's certainly not going to kill them. It's certainly not going to kill any young people if they contract this uh, so-called pandemic virus. So could it possibly be that there are other cofactors at play here that relate to public health? The fact that the government is not referring at all to uh, uh, pandemic levels of, of obesity, the fact that we have many people in society ha who haven't got the first idea how to look after their, their, their personal health and well-being because they eat badly, they eat junk food, which still, still by the way, bizarrely has not been banned under the, the government's public health regulations. So, you know, it is perfectly acceptable for us in this so-called free society to be able to question these absurd and ridiculous over-the-top policies as a means of responding to COVID-19. Mm. Now, like the, the, the idea of even questioning things has become incredibly controversial, like, like outrageously controversial in my mind. Um, like we used to rely in this country, or at least I, I believed, upon like this system where the government would announce a policy and then journalists would, would spend their every waking moment 
in work trying to figure out whether they were, you know, talking rubbish and whether it was based on fact, like how much it was going to cost, what were the other consequences going to be? And and I used to believe that that was the system in which we operated. Um, I've, I've, and, and yet we, we've come to this position where uh, even stating like things that the World Health Organization say is 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 controversial, and I just I, I'm I'm baffled. Like you talked about, uh, we've talked about the lockdowns and the vaccine passports. So last year, the World Health Organization said unequivocally that lockdowns were not a long term solution. That the 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 consequences of them, whether that's economic, um, whether that's you know people people's isolation, mental health. Um, development and learning of children like there's there's a, a long list of, of other like consequences of it where they said that was not a good long-term solution and we ignored them then today i saw they they came out and said vaccine passports are a, a horrible idea for not just for uh, like domestic use but even for international travel they have come out against it and yet questioning these things or stating just things from like government figures is is becoming this like taboo subject where if you say something like that, you are a COVID denier or or people get really mad at you saying, oh, you know, you just want to kill your grandparents or you want to kill my grandparents or yeah. or something like that. Like how how are we meant to respond to to this? Because the, this the, the you know free debate expression discussion used to be one of the like founding principles of of the the developed world and yet we've just decided on this topic it's just not allowed yeah yeah it it, it appears not to be you know i i um i used to appear quite a lot on the on the media as a as a, a kind of social certainly a business commentator but but also on, on political issues as well and i was I was interviewed by the uh, the BBC. Um, I think it was eighteenth uh, of December last year, and it was the, the the first and last time that I, I appeared in the BBC to discuss uh, this issue because what I was saying was completely anathema and, and, and deemed to be misinformation. It was only my expression of my opinion, um, something which the BBC seemed to want. I could show you a stack of. Um, of little slips where they pay me my 50 pounds contributor fee, literally that thick <laughs> of contributions that I've made over the years. Um, and then suddenly that came to a halt because my opinion was deemed to be beyond the pale and completely unacceptable. Uh, but the same thing is happening even in, in social media as well, obviously. Um, we assumed, I, th- I suppose, that when this happened, when the BBC became just a, a sort of... Um, broadcaster apparatchik for the the government that uh, we at least could resort to social media. But of course, the same thing is happening there. I produced entirely as a result of my own work. Uh, I wrote a a, a short video, uh, which I put out in in January, which was simply comparing the the rates of fatality, the, the excess death rates in the winter of 2020, 2021, to the, the, the same period, really, in the, uh, the year 2014-15. Um, it was called a tale, a tale of Two Januaries. And it was using purely the Office of National Statistics own data and Public Health England data to compare those two winters in terms of uh, death numbers. Uh, and 
it received a very, it was very widely accepted. A lot of people watched it. Uh, and then lo and behold, it was essentially censored. It had a great big uh, misinformation notice stamp put on it on, on Facebook. And uh, that was as a result of a, a company called Fact Check NI. And by the way, even though I come from Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland was not mentioned at all in the video. <laughs> it was purely English data that I was referring to. But this organization, which apparently is commissioned, I didn't know these organizations existed, but apparently Facebook appoints mm -hmm. uh, these little organizations, uh, little do-gooder organizations, uh, apparently, that report what they consider to be material that goes against the, the Facebook uh, accepted standard. And that was part of the reason why this video, which was purely an attempt on my part to put out some interesting numbers and some debate, uh, was, was censored as a result of them uh, telling teacher. So it's, uh, it's, so it, it's, it's certainly the case that the freedom of speech is being censored in, uh, on social media. Of course, many of the people who are most forceful in terms of their, uh, their, their, their opinions uh, on the, the government's response, um, Michael Yeadon, for example, uh, former head of respiratory uh, disease research at Pfizer, uh, was taken off uh, um, um, a Twitter, but many, many other, Na Naomi Wolf, who's, by the way, interestingly, I, I seem to have made a new cohort of friends through all of this <laughs> process because Naomi is very much identified with the left and the Demo Democratic Party in the US, former advisor to Clinton. Uh, and um, and she just uh, I did an interview with her, which is on the the New Era um, UK site. Um, uh, but she's just recently uh, been been uh, delisted from uh, from Facebook, hopefully temporarily, but with one hundred and thirty thousand followers. You know, so uh, and is obviously a, a published author and and journalist um, and attempting again just to move the debate forward a little bit and, and has now essentially been uh, been censored. So it, it's, it's extreme. Now, there are notable exceptions, but, but obviously journalists often have to pay the mortgage. They, they have paymasters and, uh, and obviously they, they have to operate within constraints. But I, I just don't know uh, how certain journalists, particularly at the BBC, can tolerate uh, the requirement on their parts now to simply parrot um, the government's lines. It's extremely dispiriting. And, and yet another example of how the heart of our democracy is being ripped out. Yeah, that's it's the, the the BBC has has really lost a lot of my respect in the last year. I mean, I used to I used to make the argument that you know there was still great work being done by them, but it's become you know less and less the case over the past year or or so. Um, you there, can... was, there are there are notable exceptions, I should say. The Panorama report in, into PCR testing, um, mm. you know, the Lighthouse Lab uh, investigation, at least. Uh, raised the issue of, uh, you know, it's, it's a subject that I've been banging on about. Uh, Carrie Mullis, the, the inventor of the uh, PCR test, has been widely, uh, obviously he died before this, this pandemic hit, but in terms of the appropriateness of PCR testing, for example, for HIV testing, he queried, even though he invented the test. So he was questioning the sort of industrialization of PCR testing 
for this type of scenario, even prior to, to this, uh, uh, this, this current situation. Um, but PCR testing as the, 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 the track and trace methodology essentially for the government, which is highly inappropriate. You know, this is a test that will find anything you want it to find if you, if you um, do enough amplification cycles. But particularly when large gobbets of snot are being transferred from one test tube to another in the labs, it's hardly an appropriate way forward to test the general population. And, and then, of course, never the ITV also did an investigation into the, um, the kind of jobs for the boys and, um, and um, the approach that the government has adopted in terms of awarding contracts, not just for PCR testing, uh, but also for lateral flow testing. So testing is a is almost a, ca- a subject that we could probably talk about separately for for another couple of hours. So <laughs> so we don't want to go into that too much. Yeah, I mean, I want I want to say as well, you can you can add me to the list of lefties that you've gained as a as a contact <laughs> um, because <laughs> on on many issues, um, several of my friends. Well, the left, I think, I think the left has been uh, has let us down so badly, you know. Um, in, in my conversation with Naomi Wolf, um, we, we touched on the fact that, you know, that um, Keir Starmer, for example, in the UK Labour Party has, has come across as, as you know, as a, a classic slippery lawyer. You know, he hasn't come across as someone who's thinking long and hard about it, articulating the opposition's position on, on this scandalous and 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 frankly moronic government you know <laughs> it's uh, so the left has has let itself down very badly and of course the, the hard left um the corbynites and i know corbyn's brother has been doing a, a, a sterling job but um but even corbyn isn't he's still banging on about the fact that we didn't lock down soon enough you know so the the left is ha- hardly showering itself in glory at the minute given the fact that there is a backbone or there's supposed to be a backbone of, um, uh, you know, human rights or human rights tradition within the, 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 the labor movement in the United Kingdom. And at the minute, the Labour Party looks utterly supine. Mm. I mean, the one thing I will say is that they they seem to have found the voice on that with the uh, kill the bill protests. Um, they seem to have realized a lot of people anyway, that that hang on, wait, they're going to try and use this to like, leave these powers as permanent like in the way that many people were warning was gonna happen um Mm -hmm. like once once we give up our rights they're very hard to get back quite often but Mm -hmm. but i mean i at least take some some sort of solace in the fact that there 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 does seem to be this this awakening as such of of people sort of realizing that oh hang on a second like they're trying to make this permanent we can't let them use this moment to uh yeah to, to essentially yeah, just push through more more authoritarian measures. I, I mean, I did like I I just just this second uh, before we started, I put out a, a podcast that I'd done all about protest uh, with Adam McGibbon, who was at the head of the anti tuition fees protest in two thousand eleven in in mm-hmm. Belfast. So so that like anyone that wants more on that, they can they can go listen to that. But the 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 as i said before we started like i wanted to talk about the the vaccine passports and because mm-hmm. you know i've heard a lot of people say oh you know it's it's fine it's just you just got to scan your thing to go to the to, you know to get in somewhere do you want to like give us like the rundown of 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 
just why this is, in your opinion, such a bad idea? Well, you, you only have to look at what, what's happened in the United States, you know, ironically. And again, they will actually of today, they said that they will not do vaccine passports. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the fact is that Florida, it, unfortunately, it it has uh, it has appeared to create uh, the bifurcation between uh if you like the true Republican Party, not necessarily the Trumpian Rep- Republicans and, and the Democrats in terms of the states that uh, are more likely to open up, um, and certainly the states that are not willing to accept um, draconian um, vaccine passports or, or Id- identification protocols, or what is it that Michael Go calls them, cert- a certification yeah. system in COVID, the, in the- COVID status And interestingly, on that, on that point, Go... Um, uh, initiated uh, a consultation exercise, and I I spent quite a bit of time uh, penning a response to that consultation exercise. Um, literally within hours of the consultation closing, the government was already uh, suggesting or mooting, uh, and of course, it heavily leaking, I should say, to the media the fact that it was considering uh, the use of. Um, passports in, in the United Kingdom, maybe for large sporting events, but possibly not to go down the pub, et cetera. But the fact was they were, they were crossing that chasm. They were, they were crossing that Rubicon. And uh, they didn't need to because there was a, a clear precedent. The United States, which hopefully is finding its mojo again, is, is finding its freedom. Um, a number of the biggest states, um, uh, such as Texas, and honestly, um, Josh, I, I am of the view that this could actually result in increasing demands for certain U.S. states to secede from the union. Mm-hmm. Uh, Texas is the most obvious candidate. Uh, Texas can ease, despite the, the energy crisis it got itself into, uh, admittedly caused by a big frost, but Texas could secede from the union and could per- perfectly capably um, go it alone. And and of course, Texas decided to, I think it was the first state to, to drop the requirement for uh, wearing of masks in, in public places. Uh, it made clear, the governor made clear that he would not be pursuing passports and Florida as well. And, and, so, and, and of course, as you would expect, because we've been looking at the situation in Sweden, there hasn't been any spike in cases because the government has not put together any compelling evidence whatsoever that people meeting in public places are contributing significantly to the spread of, uh, of COVID. In fact, asymptomatic spread has never been act- actively proven. Um, there has been no peer-reviewed papers produced. There incidentally has yet to be a, a cost-benefit analysis produced. For lockdown in the UK, the government has been wittering on about the fact that it's going to produce one at some point. I think it produced some shambolic uh, paper uh, like a, a bit like Blair's dodgy dossier, but it hasn't really produced any cost-benefit analysis for lockdown. Uh, and it certainly uh, has no moral justification or empirical justification for introducing uh, passports. The other thing is the public mood. You know, I cannot believe, and I'm saying that if, if, if Ben Page of Ipsos Mori is watching this, I really do question whether there is uh, public acceptance for COVID passports. There isn't. 
everybody I speak to, and admittedly, I do operate in a bubble. We all do to an extent. We tend to sort of seek out people who uh, corroborate uh, our, our, our viewpoints. Um, we've all been breaking COVID rules by having dinner in each other's houses um, w- with people who are of, our, of a similar worldview. But despite that, I am absolutely convinced that there is no popular mood in the United Kingdom uh, to support uh, passports because... Everybody who is vulnerable has been vaccinated. And if the government is, is uh, correct and that this vaccine has efficacy, why the hell does it need passports? Why do we have to show a passport or show the fact that we've been vaccinated if the most vulnerable people um, are already vaccinated or indeed the vaccinated vulnerable people who are concerned are probably still at home? So why should the rest of us not be able to go out and get on with our lives? So it is at the most fundamental level, the most appalling uh, act against freedom that this ragbag collection of politicians have ever come up with. We have never had anything like this. Never. Even in Northern Ireland, during the worst of our troubles, Mm -hmm. the IRA was bombing the hell out of the the centre of Belfast and Loyalists were shooting up uh, random people in, in, in Belfast. We were not ever inclined towards introducing a scheme whereby we couldn't go down the pub and talk to our friends and, and try to get out of the misery that, that was being inflicted upon us. You know, surely this is a step too far and everybody can see this. Hmm. I mean, the one, the one thing I do want to point is that there's there's two reasons for me it it stands out as being um terrifying like first of all um boris johnson himself and i think it was 2005 said first of all if anyone tries to introduce an id card like give it to like you should just eat it with your cornflakes i think the quote was um and it will be (sighs) test and trace was a very temporary program to target only people who had been you know, tested and then to call people about it. And that cost 37 billion pounds. The cost of a, of a, of to, to build the infrastructure like of this technology is going to be astronomical, especially considering the government, this government in particular will not seek out the most cost effective way to do it. No. Um, they will, <laughs> they will waste the money uh, by giving it probably to friends of theirs as they seem to do with everything during this um, crisis, which is in its own thing, just both disgusting and horrendously corrupt to the point where I honestly don't believe how people are not up in arms at the fact that they have stood on the graves of the people who have died and, and, you know, use the fear that they have created to hand money to their friends and donors. That's disgusting um, in, in my mind. But the other reason is because like the, this, this like digital pass is like a step towards authoritarianism, even by itself. And, and you can say, oh, but they won't use it like that. But no government ever, like no one ever thinks they're going to use the, like that sort of power to do anything. It, 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 it never starts from a position where people believe that something could be used 
for anything other than the explicit goal with which it is it is put in place for. But I, I, I in the in the podcast I did with Adam McGibbon that I put out today, I was talking about protests. Um, I, we went through this list of things that this government has done that is decidedly authoritarian over the past like three four years. Um, they have attempted to pass this policing bill that will um, essentially outlaw protest. Um, they are trying to put the vaccine pass in. They prorogued Parliament in order to avoid debate and scrutiny. They have tried to ram through numerous bills without like uh, like without um reasonable debate and and uh yeah examination they have fought with many journalists refused to appear both on channel four and good morning britain at sep- on separate occasions because they didn't like their style of journalism and their their lines of questioning they turned the uk government website into a data harvesting exercise they have tri- tried on numerous occasions to expand powers of policing they've put gag orders on nhs staff there's reportedly a blacklist of journalists who use uh, freedom of information act requests and they've attempted to just not um, like fulfill Freedom of Information uh, Information Act requests as possible. They have made strikes more difficult. They have been held, Theresa May and her, her government was held in contempt of parliament for the first time in I don't know how long. The, 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 the problem is not when you view it as one action. It's like, for me, the problem is when you view it as part of that whole body of 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 decidedly no, authoritarian would, moves. <laughs> yeah, I would I would take issue with you a little bit in that I don't think that this is necessarily a uh, um, a draconian conservative party or that the there is a sort of vein of authoritarianism running through conservatism and certainly not the bit of conservatism that I was involved in. But then I was always involved in the, the sort of libertarian strand of the party. And of course, they still exist to some degree. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and that would be represented, obviously, in terms of some of the prominent members of some of the kind of fringe groups within, within the, the party. Um, but, uh, and, and I wouldn't necessarily agree with your point about, uh, Theresa May was in a, in a situation where she couldn't get anything done because essentially she was in a, she was running a minority government, so she couldn't, mm-hmm. she couldn't get a mandate. Uh, for, and that's why the, the election happened. But I think the Johnson government has taken this to a level the like of which we have never seen before. We've never seen before. I, I'm, I'm actually currently plowing through all three volumes of Margaret Thatcher's biography at the minute. And the thing that marked uh, Thatcher's tenure more than any other, I, I, even if you don't agree with anything that she did, and you probably don't. Not a lot, you, no. <laughs> maybe a few things. But uh, even if you don't agree with anything that she did, what she did do was understand and research and take a position. Johnson doesn't. Mm. He's very, very stupid. And he is incredibly disorganized. And we had a, an insight into that when, for example, the, some of the infamous Eddie Mayer interviews, you know, the, the car crash interviews. The, the, in fact, I just tweeted one this morning, the one in 2013, where Mayor said, said to him, you really are a nasty piece of work, aren't you? Because he, he comes across as someone who is one, hapless, but two, verging on psychotic in terms of his self-interest. And he's a liar. And, and we've seen many instances of, instances of that in this, this administration, where he has literally said one thing one day and said the diametrical opposite the next, where he's consistently... Uh, lied to Parliament and to the British public. 
He said that something is not going to happen, and it happens. And in fact, people who uh, are, are often um, uh, tainted by the BBC and, and labeled as conspiracy theorists, often they have told more truths during this, uh, this uh, debacle than, than many of the things that have come out of Boris Johnson's mouth. You know, every, in, in this era, conspiracy theorists are often the ones that are coming out with the most interesting anecdotes and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and forecasts, because frankly, the government's own forecasters have been liars. Uh, they have been using dodgy data and dodgy dossiers, um, the like of which we have never seen. You know, the, uh, you know, the 4,000 deaths per day in the second wave, the, uh, you know, you, you name it, they have come out with uh, every which way of, uh, of dodgy data. And to some extent, that, that relates to the point I was making earlier about the paymasters. You know, Imperial College London, um, supposedly one of our finest academic institutions, being paid every which way by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, you know, and I'm not talking here small sort of £250,000 grants, millions and millions and, and recurring grants of multiple millions. Um, the, the BBC itself saying that it only receives one or two million, you know, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, its, it's, it's charity wing uh, received a grant of over 20 million from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, and which it only recognizes, by the way, when the money sort of a, it, it's over a period of several years. But the fact was that it got a tranche of, of well over 20 million from Bill and Melinda Gates. Ipsos Mori that I mentioned earlier, the polling organization taking over 2 million in grant. What is a commercial organization doing taking grant support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? So these, these large tech firms and so-called charities uh, are all over the place and uh, have their tendrils into every academic institution of note uh, and into many politicians. Um, the, uh, the leader of the, the opposition, uh, the, Keir Starmer, uh, is, a, is a member of forum, a member of the Trilateral Commission, which, uh, which is very close to the World Economic Forum, which in turn is very close to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And these are the things that were being said by conspiracy theorists, which are now beginning to you know, tax the brains of maybe people who are a bit more conservative with a small C in terms of, of how they were looking at this, this current uh, uh, political situation that we're in. Mm. And, and we're now wondering to what extent uh, our pol elected politicians, their paymasters are in fact not the taxpayers of the United Kingdom, uh, but other more shady institutions that have a, a clear and obvious agenda. Hmm. I mean, I'm not a fan generally of the term conspiracy theorist. I don't like it. Uh, I think it unfairly is, is used more and more to label anyone who is not, um, you know, it's behind. a good way of shutting them up. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's actually a, a term that was reportedly coined by the CIA in order to shut people down talking about um JFK's assassination. That's when the term first uh, started to be used, which is which I find hilarious, just in its own little thing. <laughs> um, but you you talked about Ipsos Mori there, and 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 their sort of uh, their receiving of money from Bill and Melinda Gates, and and you kind of touched as well on on attempting to judge the public mood, and and that's something I find really difficult because I can speak to a whole bunch of people, and I can look at my ad admittedly 
probably echo chamber or bubble on online of who I listen to or who I, I like I I attempt to not live in that bubble but uh, it's it's very difficult in in a lot of ways it's it's you know we can all fall 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 prey to those those kind of like tendencies but then when I see polls coming out that say 60 70 percent of the british public are just fine with vaccine passports coming from the country that as as long as i can remember was like against id cards of any form as like a draconian authoritarian move like that's that's always been like the the what i've got from the british public at least looking at trying to look at this and like id id cards have been repeatedly rejected because of their like the the sort of big brother nature of them and yet we're supposed to believe that 60 to 70 percent of the public are fine with like having to scan your phone to go into the shop it's a a well it's a well-proven technique and unfortunately a lot of the polling and by the way i'm a full member of the market research society i'm a i'm a, a former professional market researcher and i've worked for uh, two of the world's l- largest market research firms. And indeed, I used to be a, a, a director, the vice president in a, in a U.S. agency that was a sister agency of, uh, of Mori, as it was in those days before it was acquired by Ipsos. Um, now, <clears throat> a lot of market research firms and polling firms um, have their own paymasters, namely their clients, and, often, and what has happened over the years is that they, they tend to have moved away from what I would call you know, truly randomized uh, surveys, which are designed to you know, elicit the opinion of the, the public in a way that gives you genuine insight that, so that you can make decisions. The purpose, in other words, is not to come up with an answer that you were seeking. But increasingly, these research firms are dependent on on commercial money and, and commercial companies are often commissioning market research in order to arrive at a conclusion that uh, they can use in order to help them sell uh, their products or become associated with a, a certain issue or topic that they want to be associated with. In other words, it's purpose of sampling in that you're trying to get information that suits the needs of the client. And this has given rise to a type of questioning, uh, which I, in fact, in the Market Research Society itself has, has, has come up with this term, which is a question which is designed to what is called invite a truism. In other words, you ask the question in such a way that the only obvious answer is to answer yes or no, for example, where you get a very high percentage of, 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 of yeses. Uh, so, for example, the question can be framed in a certain way. And I'm not suggesting that any of the agencies have framed the, the questions in these ways. I haven't looked at the questions in enough detail. But a question could be asked, for example, uh, would you be agreeable to COVID passports or you know, COVID immunity passports, whatever they want to call them, if it results in people having their freedom in order to dine out and go to the pub? Now, everybody's going to say yes to that, not because they're agreeing with the idea of COVID passports, but rather they're agreeing with the idea that they should be let out to go to the pub. (laughs) Um, So it's inviting a truism. And unfortunately, there are certain agencies that do this a lot. And, you know, Maury was um, a case in point. So a few years ago, it it did a series of interviews where, for example, it asked... uh, the general population to guess as to how many 
Muslims uh, made up the overall UK population. And it came out with banner headlines saying that, you know, most of the UK population massively overestimates the number of Muslims, which implied that we were kind of looking for Muslims under our beds and that we considered them an imminent threat. And of course, we weren't, you know, you, you can't expect the public to know off the top of their heads the overall percentage of the population that is Islamic or Muslim. So it's, it's, a, it's a very, very sad and pathetic way to ask a question and then use the, re the research data to get a headline or get coverage in the media. So um, unfortunately, I think that certain agencies have discredited themselves significantly. And I think this nonsense about the, there being popular support for a, a passport is a, is a case in point. I mean, there's that that classic scene from Yes Minister where they where he explains how you know how polling can be misleading dependent on the on the question, <laughs> which is great. Uh, but anyway, uh, Jeffrey, I just uh, to, like one final question here before we finish up because I'm sure we could talk about this um, all day. Like, wh why do you think that that fear has been such a huge part of of this entire year? Um, it's been very clear from from the way the media have portrayed uh, COVID, from the way the government have portrayed it, and from the way people have responded that that fear is the seems to be the driving emotion here at the moment. And even even from people people like ourselves here who are concerned about like the the, the you know government overreach, um, that's all. Like our our responses are also coming from from fear ultimately. Like why do you think that's played such a huge part of of the way this? this entire last 12, 13 months has played on you? Because fear is the best means of getting people to do what they normally wouldn't want to do, um, particularly in this case of giving up their freedom. And uh, the government has been dabbling in, in kind of the fear techniques for, for a number of years. Um, a case in point would be the, the Behavioural Insights Unit, which was created in the Cabinet Office. And again, this kind of pertains to the whole uh, area of of research and, and the use of empirical data uh, to change people's opinions and move them in directions that you want them to go. Uh, you know, the, the kind of whole purposive approach to, to government. Um, obviously, uh, the other aspect to this is the involvement of, of some of these shady international organizations, such as the World Economic Forum. Uh, there, there's some, again, to use that awful term again, some of the, the conspiracy theorists, if we, if we, sh we shouldn't call them that, but some of the people who have been theorizing on the, the idea that the World Economic Forum uh, and the Trilateral Commissioner behind all of this, that one of the arguments they've made is that the, the, whole, the, the old concepts of left and right no longer hold. As far as the World Economic Forum is concerned, there's only really um, three ideas and in time, one that there's a potential pandemic that's going to kill us all, and therefore governments need to respond appropriately. Uh, two, that we need to use di centralized digital technologies to control populations, and three, that there's an impending global uh, crisis in terms of climate. And these are the three kind of main tenets of, uh, of government policy going forward. And uh, and the World Economic Forum has been uh, peddling this this stuff. Um, there are germs of truth in, in some of it. Um, certainly, there's no reason why we shouldn't be more energy efficient and so on. But to totally change our entire systems of government and democracy 
is the stage to which the World Economic Forum seems to have got. And it has got no issues or compunctions about having chats and including uh, totalitarian regimes in, in this whole approach, um, particularly the government of China. Now, when I was stranded in Helsinki about to get my flight home, and I thought, and we were on the verge of, of lockdown. We didn't know that then, but we, we knew something was going to happen, certainly, that there was going to be a more uh, obvious response by the UK government. Uh, but not, I don't think any of us really thought that the UK government would go to the extent of locking everybody in their homes and telling them to stay at home. Um, and that was, it would appear, and, and it's the only conclusion I think we can reach, is that there were a number of actors uh, in active conversation, certainly the World Economic Forum, certainly the government of China, and in fact, even Matt Hancock has, has kind of fessed up that the, the UK government did consult with the Chinese authorities in terms of how it supposedly dealt with uh, COVID in Wuhan. So they are definitely complicit. And the, the, the only conclusion we can reach is that um, suppressing populations and oppressing populations and using tyrannical approaches and certainly using propaganda seems to be now a norm for dealing with populations. And, and of course, the Chinese have given us the template in terms of fear as a means of getting people to be highly subservient. But of course, its population was subservient in any case, so we weren't quite sure if it would have worked in the UK. So the only way to go to go was to lay it on with a trowel. And that's essentially what they've done. They've used a sledgehammer to get the, uh, the population to be compliant. And of course, it's very difficult to uh, come up with, with strategies to uh, be non-compliant because you can't get out, you can't go to the coffee shop, you can't meet people face to face, can't travel. Uh, and, and therefore, it, it's kind of a, a vicious cycle uh, of um, suppression, which uh, is very, very difficult to break out of. I, find it, I have found it very frustrating. You know, I've been campaigning for various things all my life politically. You know, I've been behind the scenes with me, in many, many campaigns. And I know you and I were probably at opposite sides in terms of the, uh, the Brexit uh, discussion. Hmm. But there, you know, I, I was involved in... And all the very, I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, social media's involvement in the Brexit campaign, but I was involved in the very basic stuff of organizing meetings and very large meetings where people put together an argument. I was involved in the, in the organization of a debate in Belfast with the business community where we debated both sides. I invited you know, prominent spokespeople from both sides of the debate to debate and we did an online poll, et cetera, et cetera. Um, ironically, using Ipsos Mori. <laughs> but... The fact was we, we, were, we were debating and we were engaging and we were out there and we were using all of the, the old normal approaches to campaigning, but those old normal approaches to camp campaigning are now banned mm. and that is incredibly worrying and that really makes me question the entire basis of, uh, of British democracy. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Um, I, I, I heard someone say that the... the if the pub was open, the revolution would have started at 2 a.m. <laughs> Which really cracked me up. It would have started outside a kebab shop, probably. I know. You're right. <laughs> and but that's, what, that's what makes it. And, and here, of course, in Northern Ireland, we, uh, we, we have uh, a bunch of people who were elected, really, as they always are elected here, you know, simply on the basis of 
whatever sectarian camp they're, they're members of. You know, we never really, and I think they were elected largely because we never really expected them to do anything of any import. <laughs> wow. You know, politicians are fine. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but the best form of politics is masterly inactivity. You know, we, we really don't need governments to do much because when they do it, they're terrible at it, as we've just witnessed. Um, they're terrible at science, by the way. Uh, there's a wonderful blogger in the U.S., a guy called Scott Lachlan, who writes a lot about, about science and just how bad uh, government is at it and uh, has been very bad at it really since the 1950s. So, um, and as a result, we, they have to buddy up with, uh, with large uh, science-based organizations to get reflected glory. You know, the idea of a government scientist is, a, is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. Uh, and to be advised by government scientists in terms of policy is is the road to ruin. Mm. I mean, I, I I find it very difficult to swallow being lectured on science by the DUP. Um, and I've also loved the way in Northern Ireland we've managed to make COVID sectarian. That was amazing because it was it was the Catholics who were who were getting you know according to Edwin Poots, it was all <laughs> it was the Catholics. They were the ones with the COVID. And so it's just like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I actually didn't think it was possible, but we made it about orange and green. Uh, so <laughs> I, I was I was stunned. And I like, honestly, fair play to the mental gymnastics that they had to do to get there. Um, that's you know, some, they, I hope they warmed up before they did that. Um, but, but Jeffrey, uh, it has been um, an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find your stuff uh, before we finish up? Well, yeah, so uh, my, my new blog is thenewera.uk. So there's no dot .co or anything, thenewera.uk. So, um, and also jeffreypeel.com is my personal blog. So uh, jeffreypeel.com is a wee bit more Northern Ireland-centric, whereas thenewera.com is, is, is more sort of UK-wide uh, and international-centric as well. It's early days for that, but, um, and if anybody would like to, you know, I've got a burning article that they'd like me to publish on that site, uh, please do get in touch. You can get in touch with me via the uh, the website. Fantastic. I will stick links to uh, the stuff you've just mentioned and everything we've discussed, including um, like donations from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, government stats, World Health Organization announcements, everything we have discussed, I will link because um, I'm going to source everything in case... YouTube decides that they don't like this discussion, so which <laughs> has idea. happened before. Um, so yeah, I'm going to. Josh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Not a problem. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, follow me on Twitter, or sign up to our mailing list. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, the number one most trusted VPN. Get lightning fast connectivity with servers in 160 locations across 94 countries. Keep your browsing privacy safe with ExpressVPN and get a 35% discount on 12 months of ExpressVPN when you follow the link in the description below. Don't forget my book is now out and available to order on Amazon and on bookshop.org. That's Brexit, the Establishment Civil War. And most importantly, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.